Oh, well, if you have a Bible with you, and I hope you do, whether it's a, a paper version or an electronic version, however you're carrying it these days, I want you to find the Old Testament book of 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel chapter 6, we're going to be uh, looking there together during the, the, the teaching time here in just a moment. But uh, before we turn to that, I, I do want to take just a moment. This is uh, an uh, important week in the life of our nation. We have uh, uh, elections coming up and the presidential election being a part of that, and some of us are just going going to be glad the commercials are going to be over, uh, aren't we, at the end of the, uh, just after a couple more days. And, uh, you know, th- this, has been a, this has been a very challenging, uh, I think, election season for many followers of Jesus Christ, uh, just because uh, many just feel like there's, there's, not a good, there's not a good alternative, there's not a good choice uh, out there. And uh, I know folks have wrestled with uh, uh, what do you do and do you vote or not vote or uh, all of those things and uh, understand people of, of good conscience have, have been wrestling with that and understand that completely. I just I guess I just want to encourage you in, in a few ways today. Uh, one uh, is that it is, uh, it is such an incredible privilege uh, to be able to vote. Uh, and I know we can take that for granted, but there are uh, millions and millions and millions of people across the world that don't have that privilege. Uh, and don't have that opportunity as a follower of Jesus Christ, as someone who we hope is building their life on uh, biblically informed values, that we have the opportunity to speak into that. And, and it's not just about a presidential election, but it's all up and down, uh, state and local and all of those things. And so we have that opportunity. And so I, I want to encourage you to take advantage of that opportunity. And uh, there's important decisions being made all up and down the spectrum, including uh, at least for me to think about whoever the next president's going to be, uh, they're probably going to be appointing several Supreme Court justices before it's all said and done, and that's going to have have perhaps ramifications for a long, long time. So I want to encourage you to vote. I want to encourage you to pray. Uh, and if I can encourage you, even as you pray, I mean, that's one of the commands of Scripture to pray for those in authority. But can I also just encourage you, regardless of what the election results are on Tuesday night or Wednesday morning or however long it goes to get it all calculated, there's one thing I know, uh, that God is still going to be on his throne, okay? Uh, and uh, the, the King of kings and Lord of lords is still going to be sovereign. And sometimes a historical perspective is very helpful just to know that there have been all sorts of governments and all sorts of people in power throughout the years, uh, but the purposes of God and the kingdom of God continues to advance. And that God, uh, God even used a, a very corrupt, at times, Roman government uh, to be a platform for the rapid spread of the gospel. And so uh, God is still in charge, regardless of whether your candidate uh, wins or doesn't win tomorrow night. And I just want to, or Tuesday night, excuse me, and I want to encourage you with that. But one other word of encouragement, I would just, it just encourage, there may be some of you that God might be prompting somewhere along the way uh, to get involved in running for a public office. Uh, and that may not be the White House, uh, but it may be something local or state level or whatever it may be. And, and it's one thing to complain about the system, but are you engaged in it as you have opportunity? And we need men and women of, of conviction. We need men and women of, of biblically-based values to be speaking in and, and, and serving in those ways. And so even as uh, you pray, I would just encourage you to say, hey, Lord, is that, 
is that something that, that you might want to use me in in some way, form, or fashion somewhere along the way? So just to encourage you in that. And so with all that in mind, before we jump into the teaching time, I did want to just take a couple moments and pray. And just pray for our nation, pray for the uh, election, and uh, pray for us as the people of God. So would you please join me in that? Let me lead us in that prayer. Father, we are so blessed to live in a land uh, that has uh, such abundance in so many ways. And uh, Father, we we get weary, we get discouraged at times, uh, frustrated with the process and the politics of it all. Uh, But Father, how we just thank you that we still can have a voice. We can still have a vote. Uh, we can still participate in the process. And, Father, I just I, I pray, Lord, that you would just guide us in that. Lord, that you would raise up uh, uh, not the leaders uh, we deserve, but uh, the leaders that we so desperately need. Uh, Father, pray that you would raise up men and women of courage, of integrity, uh, men and women who would uh, uh, really seek to bring a, an obedience to you and to all that they do in their life and, and even leadership in government. Father, we just uh, pray asking you just, just to superintend this whole process and raise up those leaders. Father, we come uh, also acknowledging that, that ultimately our faith is not in the outcome of any one election, but it's in you. It is in your sovereign care over the universe. It is over your kingdom and, and all that you are unfolding in history. And, Father, our confidence is not in our candidate, but our confidence is in our king. And we just thank you and praise you that we can place our faith and hope and trust and confidence there. Lord, just uh, pray that you would just show us what it means to, to live as a citizen of heaven, but also uh, for these years that we have on this earth, a citizen in this land. And to, to render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's, unto God the things that are God's. Father, just uh, thank you. Thank you for men and women who are serving in so many of these areas. And there's, they're serving with courage. They're serving with integrity. They're, they're serving at times at, at great personal cost. And we just thank you for that and pray that you would just continue to raise them up, even from this church family. Father, we just praise you that the nations are sovereign under your hand and that you are at work even in this nation. Father, we pray this with hope, with trust, and with confidence in the name of Christ Jesus, our Lord and our King, we do pray. Amen. Well, thank you for joining me in that. I want to ask you as we, we dive into the teaching here, we're talking about developing a heart like God's. And I want to just ask you to think and not necessarily shout out loud, but what is it that you're passionate about? If somebody asks you, what are you passionate about? What would start to first come to your mind? And maybe for some of us, it would be a relationship. Maybe for some of us, it would be uh, our job, a career. I just, I'm passionate about this. For some, it would be a hobby. Oh, man, I just, I love to do this with my hands, or I love, love to engage in this, or I love to be out in the woods, or whatever it might be. For some of you, you're passionate about a, a sports team, whether it's your favorite college team or pro team or whatever it is. And so you, you just, you're very passionate about those things. And the truth of the matter is, we, we, are, we are passionate about a lot of things. We have the the capability to be passionate about a lot of things and and a lot of those are very very good things but what I would really want to just kind of just stretch you to think about is is as human beings uh, we are worshipers we recognize and respond to to worth and we we are passionate about something and perhaps many somethings but out of that passion we will give our full devotion to something or someone 
And while God has created us with capacity for passion and even multiple passions, our primary passion is intended to be for God. The, 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 the greatest passion, the deepest devotion, our primary passion is always to be directed toward God. The, the, that, that is where our focus is to be. And I think C.S. Lewis had it right. C.S. Lewis talked about our love for what he would call our earthly dearest and how that compares to our love for God. Let me just read you some of Lewis's words. When I have learned to love God better than my earthly dearest, I shall love my earthly dearest better than I do now. Insofar as I learn to love my earthly dearest at the expense of God and instead of God, I shall be moving toward the state in which I shall not love my earthly dearest at all. When first things are put first, second things are not suppressed but increased. My way of saying that is if I love God first, I'll love everybody and everything else the best. But if I don't love God first, if he is not the highest passion of my life, then I will not have the capacity to love the other people and other things in my life at the absolute best. Our primary passion is always intended to be for God. What we see in 2 Samuel 6 is another episode out of David's life. And in this episode, he's displaying a heart of passion and maybe to fully understand this episode some of you will be familiar with it we need to just get some quick background out information because what's taking place in second samuel 6 is that they're moving the ark and part of that's just out of out of david's passion for the lord and he wants this this symbol of uh, of the presence of god to be central in in jerusalem he wants it to be there as just a reflection of god's uh, place in his heart and hopefully god's place in the nation as a whole. And so they're getting ready to move the ark to Jerusalem. Now, quick background on the ark. The ark is this, this box. God had very much prescribed how it was to be built, how it was to be assembled, what it stood for. It was a place that it was a box, if you will, that had a very special meaning. A very special meaning. Look at Exodus 25. There I will meet with you and above the mercy seat from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony. I will speak with you about all that I give you in commandment for the people of Israel. Israel. And so it was this symbol of the presence of God. It was this place of, of meeting with God. And so it had this, this special significance, this special meaning to the Hebrew people. And with that special meaning came some very specific instructions, some very specific instructions about how they were to handle the ark, how they were to, to, to transport it and everything else. One example of that is in Deuteronomy 10. At that time, the Lord set apart the tribe of Levi to carry the ark of the covenant of the Lord, to stand before the Lord, to minister to him, and to bless in his name to this day. And if you would continue to read there in those uh, first few books, you would find a lot of the things that are prescribed about how it is to be transported. But the Levites were to transport it on some poles. And with those specific instructions came a very serious warning. And I highlight this serious warning because it plays into the narrative of Second Samuel 6. The serious warning, Numbers 4, 
And when Aaron and his sons have finished covering the sanctuary and all the furnishings of the sanctuary, as the camp sets out, this is about moving, after that the sons of Kohath shall come to carry these. But they must not touch the holy things, lest they die. These are the things of the tent of meeting that the sons of Kohath are to carry. And so we have, have this, 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 this symbol of God's presence. We have some very specific instructions about how it is to be transported. And along with that, a very serious warning that, that we are not to lay a human hand on that. All of that sets the stage for understanding kind of the drama in 2 Samuel 6. Let me just invite you to, to follow along with me. And we're going to think about this as kind of a three-act play, if you will, centered around three characters, Uzzah, David, and then David's wife, Michael. Let me just read and ask you to follow along. 2 Samuel 6, the first 11 verses is kind of act one. David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal Judah to bring from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Aho, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart. And with the ark of God, Aho went before the ark. And David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his error, and he died there beside the ark of God. And David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah. And that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. And David was afraid of the Lord that day. And he said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? So David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David. But David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. The ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. Now let, let's, let's pause right here. Let's, let's try to understand what what's taking place. The, the transportation of the ark kind of sets the stage for this dramatic outbreak, this dramatic display of the holiness of God. And as we think about this, I, I want us to understand it is very possible to be quite religious and have, without having an appropriate all reverence and respect for God. It's possible to be in a church and not have the proper all and respect and reverence for the holiness of God. It's possible to be a pastor and not have those things. It's possible to do good things and not have those things. God is looking when he's developing a heart for those who are not merely religious, but those who have a passion for him. And part of that passion is understanding uh, the, the greatness of God. And, and with that, it creates an awe, a, a reverence, a, a respect for God. But very often, instead of that, we can kind of treat God lightly. And we treat God lightly in at least a couple ways that are demonstrated in this text. The first is when we disobey the command of God. Whenever I disobey the command of God, I'm really treating God lightly. In some sense, I'm saying, God, you don't understand. God, I'm smarter than you. God, I have this figured out. God, I know a better way than your way. I'm in a sense saying that to God every time I choose my way rather than his way. And so when you come to this text, they're transporting the ark but they're moving it on a cart 
They're not moving it not in the way that God had prescribed, the Levites handling it with these poles. They are moving it on a cart. Now, that raises the question, where in the world did they get the idea to move it on a cart? And the answer is found in the Scripture. Earlier in the, in the book of 1 Samuel, the ark at one time had been captured by the Philistines. And because of all the, the, was the kind of the, the destruction and, and mess that was happening, the Philistines said, we've got to get rid of this thing. We've got to send this back. Well, they didn't know anything about how to do it, so what did they do? They put it on a cart. And they sent it back. We've included the text there from 1 Samuel 6. And I won't take the time to read that. You, you can understand that there. But they put it on a cart and they sent it back to the Hebrew people. Basically, it was a Philistine idea. And here, here's the takeaway from that. You and I have to beware the subtle invasion of what we'll call Philistine philosophy. Philistine philosophy. And what do I mean by that? What I mean is that all of us, all of us have grown up with certain things that were a part of our culture, things that maybe were part of our family, maybe part of the religious tradition we were in, the church we were in, or whatever it might be, uh, things that we've picked up from others along the way, our college experience, life experiences, all those things. And so we, we've kind of adopted some philosophy. Philosophies. We've adopted ways of thinking. We've adopted ways of operating. And at times they seem to make sense. I mean, why not put that thing on a cart? Why not let the, the oxen pull that thing? It's heavy, right? I mean, why, why, why should you carry this on poles? We, we, we can subtly begin to kind of adopt some Philistine philosophy. We can adopt things from our culture. And I'm, I'm not saying that we don't. We, certainly, there are things that we can learn and adopt and adapt from our culture without a doubt. But when those things put us in direct opposition to the commands of God, then we are in a dangerous place. And so they were disobeying the command of God and instead operating when it comes to transporting the ark according to a Philistine philosophy. I treat God lightly when I disobey the commands of God. I treat God lightly when I take a shortcut. I treat God lightly, not with all reverence and respect, when I decide that my way, even if I do it subtly, my way is better than your way. That command doesn't make sense to me, so I'm going to choose this way instead. I am disobeying the commands of God, and I am treating a holy God very lightly. A second way that I can treat God lightly is when we disregard the holiness of God. Disregard the holiness of God. And I understand this is one of the most challenging passages because when we first read it, it's like, this, I can't believe this. I can't believe this. This guy reaches out his hand to kind of steady the ark because, you know, it looked like it might totter there a little bit. Uh, and, and God strikes him down. I mean, he drops dead literally right there. And in this dramatic display of the, the holiness of God and how it is not to be disregarded. I remember reading about this years ago, and, and R.C. Sproul was writing about this, and I remember this sentence because it just so overwhelmed me. And the, the essence of the sentence was this, that Uzzah assumed that his hand was less polluted than the earth. That he assumed that his hand, his sin-tainted hand would be less polluted than if the ark ended up on the earth. And in that moment, it struck me. The holiness of God. When you understand, the New Testament says, the wages of sin is death. 
What I deserve, what you deserve, is what Uzzah got. I mean, that's justice. That's justice before a holy God. The fact that my heart is still beating and I'm still drawing breath is God's mercy and God's grace and God's love and God's patience and God's kindness. And so when I understand that, uh, we get shocked when this justice breaks out. But God had already said, this is what happens. And he had, they had so disobeyed the commands of God. He disregarded the holiness of God that in that moment that, that justice was delivered. And it is almost shocking so. Can, can I just tell you that sometimes I wonder, I worry even a little bit about myself or others. I think sometimes even some of the language we use in talking about God seems to disregard the holiness of God. The man upstairs, right? Or some of the jokes we'll tell. Listen, I love jokes. I love to laugh. I love humor. But sometimes if you start listening to some of the the quote-unquote jokes that are told about God or God's part of the joke or something, it's like, that is so, so antithetical, so opposite of who God is in Scripture. It so devalues and disregards the holiness of God, the the purity, the the power, the wisdom, the love. And so I would just maybe caution, just because we can absorb some of that from the culture, even the religious culture, doesn't mean it's right. And what we're going to try to do through each of these acts is kind of say, when am I most like this person? When am I most like Uzzah? We are most like Uzzah when we decide not to obey God fully. When we decide not to obey God fully. Can I just encourage you, even as I challenge myself, the details matter. The details really matter. And that worship without obedience in the end is a mockery. If I I am coming and I'm showing up at religious services or I'm having a quiet time or I'm reading my Bible or I'm doing religious things or I'm serving or whatever it is, but if it's not flowing from a heart of obedience, it's mockery before a holy God. Let us not think that attending a service and pitching a few bucks in the plate somehow covers up a heart that is not fully attuned and passionately obeying God. Yes, we all do it imperfectly. Yes, it's sometimes three steps forward and two steps back. But if we're continuing to walk in an area of disobedience and thinking that somehow, some way, religious activity is going to cover that, it is a mockery to a holy God. And the thing about it is, it ends up destroying our passion. It ends up destroying our passion for the one in whom we are called to be the most passionate about. I am most like Uzzah when I decide not to obey God fully, when I pick and choose along the way, when I decide sometimes my way is better than God's way. I take a thing, I, I most like Uzzah, excuse me, when I take the things of God lightly whether that's sacred things or sacred moments. And, you know, they're, they're just, sometimes there are those moments. Let's just, let's just take the Word of God. I mean, to think that God inspired a Word to be written and that it has been protected and preserved because people have tried to destroy it for centuries and that it's in a language that I understand 
And that that same God, creator, sustainer of the universe, perfect in purity, perfect in in all that he does, has decided to communicate to me through his word. And that he will take that written word and he'll take his Holy Spirit and he will speak into my life. That is a precious thing. That is something not to be taken lightly. And when I say I don't have time for that, I'm too busy for that, I don't need that, it is taking the things of God, special moments, taking them, treating them so lightly. If God shows me something from his word and invites me to step out in obedience, and I, eh, that is taking that moment and regarding that sacred speaking of the Holy Spirit, that whisper of God's Spirit and taking it so lightly. We're most like Uzzah when we seek to reduce God to a box. And what do I mean by that is that one of the things you find sometimes in reading through the Old Testament is that sometimes they treated the ark like kind of a magic thing, right? Go fetch the box. We're in trouble. We're getting beat in this battle. Somebody go fetch the box and bring it here. And sometimes we can treat God like that. God, I've kind of got you in the box here. And if I need you, if it's an emergency, if it's a really big thing, I'll break it open. I'll invite you in. But if I treat God that way, I am treating God lightly. I'm only saying, God, I only need you occasionally. I only need you in case of emergency. I just want you to kind of be my fixer, right? I want you to come in and fix some things in my life from time to time. But I don't want you to mess with my life. I don't want you to, 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 to be the, the, the king of my life. I just want you to be the fixer in my life. And whenever I do that, I am treating God so, so lightly. Uzzah reminds us of the the necessity to take the commands of God and the things of God so seriously. Well, let's move to Act 2. Act 2 centers around David. And David is, is dancing before the Lord. Three months later now, and it was told King David, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. And David danced before the Lord with all his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod and so david and all the house of israel brought up the ark of the lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn right i mean can you picture this now they're doing it and what's taking place is david david's learned his lesson what happened in those three months is David did his homework or had somebody do the research and said, what, what did we do? What did we do in, in, in disregarding and disobeying God? And he learned his lesson. And, and Chronicles tells us, uh, kind of a parallel passage here, tells us what they did. Because you did not carry it the first time, David speaking, the Lord our God broke out against us because we did not seek him according to the rule. So the priests and the Levites consecrated themselves to bring up the ark of the Lord, the God of Israel. And the Levites carried the ark of God on their shoulders with the poles as Moses had commanded according to the word of the Lord. And so he comes 
comes and he says, God, forgive us, man. We, we, we did it. We did it our way. We adopted Philistine philosophy. God, I am taking you and your word seriously. And he comes and they, they come and they do it in the way that God had prescribed. And then David, did you see what's going on with this guy? I mean, he was not a Baptist, right? I mean, man, he was dancing before the Lord. I mean, he was, he was getting with it. I mean, it was just with all of his might. With all of his might, I mean, this was, not, this was not a passive thing. This was a passionate thing. He had this passionate understanding of the holiness of God, of, of God's love and God's grace and God's mercy in his life. And he couldn't help but dance and the music's going and all of those things. See, David was fully alive. David was fully alive in his relationship with God. And can I just encourage you? This is my encouragement today. When we talk about a passionate heart, you don't have to check your brains at the door to worship God. I mean, bring all the intellectual horsepower you have in your relationship with God. But for some of us in the room, that's not the challenge. For some of us in the room, we don't bring our whole heart to the worship of God. We don't bring our whole being to the worship of God. You don't have to check your brains at the door, but you also don't have to check your heart. You don't have to check your emotions. Be all in. Be all in. I mean, he is passionate. He is fully alive to God. See, one of the things that happens to us when I ask you early on, what are you passionate about? And please hear me. I understand we all have different personalities. We all display passion differently. I'm not saying you have to do it exactly like somebody else did. But I want you to think about some of those things that you're passionate about. How do you display the passion in those areas? Okay? Let me just pick on some of us guys and some of you gals too. Right? We watch a game on TV. Right? And I have heard such tales of folks that they're watching the TV, perhaps hundreds or thousands of miles away from the actual game. And they're screaming, right? They're screaming at this video signal coming over the cable or the, the satellite dish. And they're yelling at the referee as if somehow, some way, the referee has his ear attuned to what's going on in that living room hundreds and thousands of miles away. Oh, sorry, I blew that call for your favorite team, right? I mean, we, we shout. We are engaged. We're, we're, we are fully alive in that moment. Some of you, when you are out in the woods or you're in nature or whatever it is, you're working in the flowers, whatever it is. I mean, you bring your whole being to that. You bring your whole heart to that. Some of you, when, you, when it's the music, you, 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 I mean, you bring all of you to that. And then you come to the worship of the King of kings and Lord of lords. And you go, yeah, just like that, just like that. Why? Why? Why would you bring your whole being to a ball game or a flower garden and not bring your whole being before a holy God? He knows you. He created you. He wants all of you in relationship with him. 
And David is dancing before the Lord with all of his might because in that moment, he is fully alive. He is fully alive to God. And maybe for some of you today, maybe today is just about giving you permission. (laughs) Giving you permission to be fully alive to God. To bring as much heart and much emotion and much focus, as much passion to your relationship with God as you do to watching the ball game. As you do to pursuing your hobby as you do to some other relationship in your life. I'm not saying don't be passionate about those things. Go for it. But just bring your greatest passion to your relationship with God. You see, worship is not just a command. In the end, it's a natural response. It's a natural response. I mean, when, when our heart begins to be overwhelmed by the greatness of God, by his love, by his grace, by his mercy, I mean, nobody has to command us to worship. We, we, it just becomes a response. We recognize his worth. We, we recognize who he is, and we can't stop talking about it. We can't stop giving expression to it along the way. I mean, we praise those things we love or appreciate, right? That's why some of us, we will talk about things so easily. We we mentioned that last week. In fact, in many ways, our praise completes our enjoyment, right? Let me just try to illustrate that. You ever been to like, you discover this new restaurant and you like have this great whatever there, hush puppy or meal or steak or whatever it is. You have, and I mean, you're just like, whoo, yeah, yeah. And you start telling people about it, right? You, you start praising it. Oh, man, you got to go there. You got to go check it out. You got to get the hush puppy. You got to get that steak. And you got to, I mean, you, not, the restaurant's not paying you. You don't get a commission, right? But you just, you, you in fact, is you enjoy talking about it. The more you tell other people about it, it just kind of enhances your enjoyment of that meal and that experience. You talk about, wow, that was great. We praise those things that we enjoy, that we love, that we appreciate. And in the praising, there is increasing of our appreciation and our enjoyment. Can I just encourage you again? If you bring your whole heart, if you bring your whole being to the worship of God, it will increase your passion for God. It will increase your enjoyment of God. But if you've got these kind of cultural binders that say, I have to check my brains or I have to check my emotions or whatever it is at the door, then it is going to inhibit your love for God and your enjoyment of God. I get it. I get it. Listen, I'm one of those, you know, you turn on some quote-unquote religious broadcasting and you see some emotional excess and you say, whoa, whoa, I am going to get as far away from that as I can. I get that. But don't let excess drive you away from bringing your whole being to the table. Engage with God with all of your heart. So when are we most like David? 
We are most like David when we fully obey all of God's commands out of a heart of love. What is it that ended up driving David back? His love for God, his desire for the, the presence and the blessings of God. And so he says, I, whatever it takes, let's figure this thing out. What does it look like to fully obey God in this matter? And there may be some of us that we just need to go back and say, what does it look like in this situation, in this circumstance, in this relationship for me to fully obey God out of a heart of love? And we are most like David when we joyfully pour ourselves into worship out of a heart of gratitude. Out of a heart of gratitude. I mean, when you just begin to be overwhelmed by the grace, the mercy, the love, the goodness of God towards you, you just that joyfully begin to pour yourself into worship. Because in the end, worship without emotion is an aberration. It is. And we talked about worship without obedience is just is wrong. But worship without emotion is wrong. Because we are emotional beings. Bring all of you to that moment. Act one was about Uzzah. Act two was about David. Act three is about David's wife, Michael, who was the daughter of King Saul. Verse 16. As the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michael, the daughter of Saul, looked out of the window, and she saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. And they brought in the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And when David had finished offering the burnt offerings and the peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts and distributed among all the people, the whole multitude of Israel, both men and women, a cake of bread, a portion of meat, a cake of raisins to each one. Then all the people departed, each to his house. And David returned to bless his household. But Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, how the king of Israel honored himself today, uncovering himself today before the eyes of his servants, female servants, as one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. And David said to Michael, it was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me as a prince over Israel, the people of the Lord. I will celebrate before the Lord. I will make myself yet more contemptible than this, and I will be abased in your eyes. But by the female servants of whom you have spoken, by them I shall be held in honor. And Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no child to the day of her death. What a contrast this is. You know, like her father Saul, Michael's heart had been dulled toward God. It had been dulled toward God. She, she could still talk the language of God. She could still have an opinion about God, but she didn't have a heart toward God. It was not a passionate heart toward God. It, it, it had been dulled. And in that dullness, she begins to judge. I mean, I just, whenever I read this, I picture in my mind her looking out the window. And I see her arms crossed and her head shaking. Her heart is so dull toward God that when someone is fully alive toward God, she doesn't see something to be celebrated or even longed for or followed, but she sees something to judge. You see, Michael wasn't free. She wasn't free to worship. And she therefore mocks David's worship. Can I just caution us here? Be very, very careful. Be very, very careful in judging another. See, it was not about David. It was about her heart, a heart that was dull toward God, a a heart that went through the motions toward God, a heart that may have been quite religious but really wasn't passionate toward God. And the more she walked in that path, the more her heart dulled. 
The more you, you, you come with all of your being, the more your passion grows. But her heart was dull, and she sits in judgment, and it begins to affect almost every area of her life over time because that's what happens when the heart gets dull. When, when am I most like Michael? We're most like Michael when we limit worship to a dutiful display without engaging the heart. When we just say, I, I worship because I'm supposed to, but I don't engage my whole being. I don't come with all of my being. It's just a duty that I check off, did worship, did a quiet time, or whatever it may be, rather than, than an engagement of the heart. I'm most like Michael when we judge others as being inappropriate or insincere. We, we sit in judgment upon others. One of the things I, I love about David, he's just worshiping before the Lord. We're most like Michael when we focus on our image rather than how our heart is relating to God. Did you notice the phrases there? David said it was before the Lord. It was before the Lord. He really wasn't that concerned until she brought it up, how, how these servants or this person or something might have been viewing David on that day because it wasn't about image management. David didn't get the, his heads together and say, can we focus group this? You know, can we, can we kind of focus group? What, what level of dancing would be well received, uh, do you think? No, he didn't worry about image. He was dancing before the Lord. He was engaging with all of his heart. He was passionate and his relationship with God. And out of that passion, he had a freedom to dance before the Lord. But Michael, perhaps she had learned it from her daddy, was more concerned about her image than she was her relationship with God. Could it be that sometimes we don't fully engage because we're worried about our image? instead of just dancing before the Lord. Quick warning. It's so easy to drift into partial living and partial loving. It's so easy. And some of us are there. Some of us are there today. And maybe, maybe it's because you've been hurt. Because, man, when you, when you go with passion, sometimes somebody stands in the window and crosses their arms and shakes their head. And sometimes somebody judges and somebody puts you down and somebody tells you you're doing it wrong or whatever it is and you're foolish to go all in and all out and, and it hurts. And sometimes when you're hurt, you back off a little. And when you back off a little, your heart doesn't grow more passionate, it grows a little more dull. And the weeks turn into months, turn into years, and you can drift by with partial living and partial loving. And what God wants to develop in our lives is fully alive. Fully alive in our living and fully alive in our loving, beginning with our love for Him. You see, everything that I've been talking about this morning, I just want to kind of put together in this statement. God deserves and desires my deepest love and my highest passion. God deserves and desires my deepest, deepest love and my highest passion. And when God gets that, then when God gets first, then he enables me to love everything else best. He enables me to engage with everything else the best. But if I don't have him first, if he hasn't got my deepest devotion and my highest love, then the love of everything else becomes distorted along the way. So I want to just kind of close this with, with a story of all places 
from the king of Siam, okay? And the story is told that the king of Siam developed a very interesting way of dealing with some of his enemy's opponents uh, within his kingdom. He wouldn't necessarily just like outright squash them with might, but he kind of knew how to destroy them nonetheless. And this was one of the king's techniques. The king would gift his enemy with a precious gift, a white elephant. Now, the white elephant was considered sacred in that time, in that culture, this albino elephant. And so you couldn't reject the gift. You couldn't give away the gift or adopt it out or anything. I mean, you had to take very, very, very good care of this, quote, unquote, sacred gift. And see, here's what the the king knew. He knew what that elephant would demand. And so he gives this, this gift of this white, this albino elephant. And what happens over time is that his enemy has to begin to give more and more time, more and more energy, more and more focus, more and more finances to the care and the maintenance and the upkeep of this white elephant until eventually his kind of house collapses. All the other things collapse under the weight of taking care of this white elephant. You know, we have a spiritual enemy. And I think the spiritual enemy knows how to use a white elephant. Because I've seen a lot of folks through the years who had a passion for God. But then something came in their life. And maybe it was a very good thing. Maybe it was a new hobby. Maybe it was a new relationship. Maybe it, it was a, you know, a, a place in the mountains or the beach or, or whatever. Maybe they just got real passionate about the kids' sports or whatever it might be. And it was not, not that these were bad things. They're, they're good things and very, even gifts from, from that you could just say, thank you, God, for that. But something began to shift. And over time, they started to give a little more energy and a little more focus and a little more time and a little more finances in that area. And over time, their relationship with God began to drift and in some cases, even just collapse under the weight of that white elephant. The enemy of your soul doesn't mind you having a good thing if that will begin to dull your passion for the greatest thing, your God. And so I just encourage you today. God deserves and desires your deepest, deepest devotion, the highest love that you are capable of giving, the highest passion. But when he is first, then he will enable you to enjoy and to love everything else best. But if the passion for God gets displaced, then it begins to invite partial living and partial loving and sometimes destruction into your life. I'm just going to encourage you, permission to be passionate, to bring all of you into your relationship with God. Give him your absolute best. Would you pray with me, please? All Father. Thank you that you are the God who has given us your best.
that you have loved us so much, you have loved us with such a passion, that you did not allow us just to stay in our sin. But Father, that you have in grace and mercy reached out to us, you have sent the greatest gift of all, your son Jesus Christ, so that a relationship with you could be restored, it could be renewed, so that we could experience a life of of passion, a life of purpose, so that we could experience life abundant, life eternal with you. And Father, I just praise you and thank you that, that you are a God who has loved us in that way. And Lord, I just pray, pray for myself, I pray for every person here, Father, would you help us to love you back? Would you help us to love you with all of our being, to bring all of us to all of our relationship with you? Father, to to be free just to dance with a freedom before the Lord, to live wide open before you. And Lord, I I don't know what exactly that's going to look like for every one of us in the room, but you do. And Lord, I just pray, I pray that you'd stretch us, I pray that you'd challenge us, I pray that you'd just reignite in us a fresh passion for you. Oh Lord, forgive us if we have in any way let a good thing become the enemy of the best thing in our life. If we have let a passion for anything else become a little greater than our passion for you, would you call us back from that today? Would you call us and teach us how to love you best? First, highest, deepest, and then out of that, every other love and passion will flow. As you just take another moment or two to sit before the Lord. There's some questions.